0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I want to start out by thanking all of our listeners for joining us today. We all know that the only treatment for celiac disease is a lifelong gluten-free diet and that cheating regularly can lead to long-term health complications like malnourishment and other autoimmune disorders. We hear our doctors telling us constantly that even a small amount of gluten can cause damage to the gut, but is it possible for our gluten-free diets to become overly strict and lead to also being unhappy? Perhaps. According to a new study that was published in January, people with celiac disease who are extremely vigilant about not eating gluten may be more anxious, exhausted, and report an overall lower quality of life. To help us discuss this study and how strict we really need to be, I have Dr. Randy Wolf from Teachers College at Columbia University in the studio. Dr. Wolf is a professor of human nutrition and one of the study's lead authors. Welcome, Dr. Wolf.
1: Hi, Vanessa. Thank you for having me.
0: We are so excited to talk about this study with you. So just to get started, could you explain to our listeners what does it mean to be hypervigilant?
1: Sure. So, um, so in our study, we wound up using um, people's diet to classify them into those that were hypervigilant, or we actually call it extremely vigilant, versus those who were less vigilant. We consider hypervigilant to be if their diet recalls met certain criteria, so either there was no evidence of an intentional or accidental gluten ingestion, they only used celiac-friendly restaurants or asked a lot of questions when they ate out, Um, these would be individuals who checked all their medication and supplements before taking them, Um, they always seemed prepared with their own food when they went out to places and kept a 100% um, gluten-free home to avoid potential for cross-contamination, or they took just like a lot of extra precautions to avoid cross-contamination. Um, on the other hand, we considered, um, at least in our study, people to be less vigilant if we saw, um, on, based on them telling us about their diet, that they had evidence of um, hidden sources of gluten in their diet or accidental gluten exposures, um, they reported maybe that they don't um, always ask questions when they eat out. Um, they don't always check labels um, or that they uh, may have reported intentional um, gluten consumption on various occasions.
0: So is it necessarily always a bad thing to be hypervigilant? You know,
1: I, I don't I don't think so at all. I think um, because we don't actually know, um, what the safest level of gluten exposure is, um, people have to take those necessary precautions. So our current standard of care is um, for people to follow a 100% strict gluten-free diet, which means that there needs to be a certain level of vigilance in order to do that.
0: Absolutely. So when I first saw this study was published, the first thing that came to my mind is how does someone go from expertly navigating the gluten-free diet in a positive way to becoming hypervigilant in a way that could make them unhappy?
1: So I actually think expertly navigating a gluten-free diet and hypervigilance are essentially the same thing. And like I just uh, mentioned, you know, since we don't know the exact level that gluten's harmless, you know, avoidance of all gluten is the current standard of care, and that really means taking all the precautions possible to maintain a strict gluten-free diet and avoid cross-contamination. But I think you're asking, you know, the right question, which is, um, you know, how can someone expertly navigate the diet or be extremely vigilant but do it in a really positive way? And to me, you know, that means not just being adherent to the diet but also maintaining a high quality of life. So in our study, you know, we showed that people, um, when they really buckle down on gluten avoidance, either because that's their approach or clinicians suggest that they take additional precautions, it may be taking a toll on their quality of life. Um, So our next step in our research would be to have to figure out what is the best way to intervene with children and adults to maintain a strict diet adherence while concurrently taking care of their social-emotional health. So to me, that would be, navigating a gluten-free diet, but in a positive way.
0: Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the study. Who was involved?
1: Yeah. So we studied um, 50 adults and 30 teenagers. They were all over the age of 13, um, and they were all recruited from the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. They all had celiac disease that was confirmed with a biopsy, including the teens, and they had um, to have had celiac disease for at least a year or longer. Um, for our adults and teens, we then asked them to complete surveys on quality of life. Um, our quality of life measures were specific to celiac disease and asked questions like, you know, do you feel limited by your celiac disease? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you have trouble socializing? Do you think about food all the time? Burdened, embarrassed at restaurants, questions like that. Um, and they're also tailored to the age group. So for teens, they included questions about you know, do you worry that having celiac disease will affect um, what college you might choose in the future? We also then ask them questions about their energy levels, their knowledge about gluten-free ingredients, and um, detailed questions over a month period about their diet to determine their vigilance level. Um, and then in addition, we asked two open-ended questions to really try to more sort of deeply understand quality of life concerns. So we just we asked them, um, you know, what makes it hard? What makes it difficult for you to follow a strict gluten-free diet? And then we also asked, you know, what makes it easy? What makes it, um, you know, a little easier for you to follow a strict gluten-free diet on a daily basis? And then we compared the groups. We wanted to see if those who were more vigilant um, had quality of life levels that were different than those who were less vigilant.
0: And what did you find amongst the different groups?
1: So we found that um, adults who were the most vigilant, so extremely vigilant, had quality of life scores that were significantly lower than those who were less vigilant. Um, Similarly, we found adults with lower energy levels also reported lower quality of life scores. And the patterns were pretty similar for the teenagers. Um, so this these findings really made us wonder, you know if extreme vigilance or this hypervigilance is actually creating anxiety and stress and may be leading to lower energy levels and fatigue. You know this was just what we call a cross-sectional study. So we can't tell if being hypervigilant actually caused fatigue or caused the lower quality of life. All we could really say is that the two were linked in our study. But we think it was a really interesting link and one that um, we think warrants further study. Um, also, I had mentioned we asked those open-ended questions, and those were really interesting too because we found the barriers that emerged for both our adults and teens you know, really were mostly restaurant-related. So they talked about sort of constant worries about cross-contamination, distrust of a gluten-free menu. You know, being designated a gluten-free menu, um, they really talked about how they disliked having to constantly ask questions and advocate for safe food, um, that they felt their restaurant choices were limited, that staff was dismissive or uninformed, and sort of the general perception that a gluten-free diet at a restaurant is a fad, and because of that, wasn't always taken seriously, which um, people found to be really problematic. And then other barriers were related to gluten-free products and missing specific ones like pizza, bread, and pasta, and also um, the added expense of gluten-free food. And then what we found was that the barriers, these barriers that I just mentioned, they were reported more often in those who were extremely vigilant versus less, less vigilant. So once again, possibly suggesting that vigilance may come at a cost to quality of life. And there was this one, I thought, really interesting quote from one of our teenagers that said, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety when I go to a restaurant with my friends and being in line and having to ask lots of questions. I don't want to hold up the line all the time. And I think that's just really illustrative of someone, um, you know, who knows they need to ask a lot of questions about their food to be adherent but also sort of reflects the emotional challenges of sort of not wanting to stand out, not wanting to bother people, not wanting to hold up the line. You know, we saw a lot of um, similar examples of that.
0: So what I think is really interesting is that we hear all the time at one-year follow-up how how great people are feeling, and they have so much energy now, and they feel so much better, but what this study potentially suggests is that some people might not be getting those full benefits of healing from the diet because of the way that they're managing it and in turn feeling exhausted and overwhelmed by it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think what we're saying that in some people this might be the case. That in some people, at least in our study, those who were the most vigilant, it was associated with these potential negative effects on quality of life. And you know, we also had people at all different stages of um, of diagnosis and. You know, certainly maybe initially when people are first diagnosed and they go on a gluten-free diet, we do have studies that suggest, you know, greater adherence um, is related to higher quality of life. But it could also be that maybe as the diet goes on over the time and people are adhering, you know, longer over time, that, um, you know, you're not maybe having some of those initial benefits but some of these emotional and social effects are... um you know, becoming problematic for people.
0: Absolutely. So our guest on last week's podcast was Rob Landoffi from the University of Connecticut, and he is the chef who set up the gluten-free program for students there. And what was really interesting is he was telling us that they purposefully ha- created a gluten-free station and protocol in every single dining hall across the campus because they were trying to help students not feel left out or like they had to do something differently from their friends so that they could eat anywhere on campus in a safe way. So I think it would be really interesting to see how those students would reply to these questions about quality of life when they have it at their fingertips everywhere they go with their friends.
1: Yeah, I think that's so wonderful that schools are doing that and, you know, being sensitive to to that, not wanting people to feel isolated, or we, you know, we did have teenagers tell us that that was a concern for them, that having celiac, they thought, will influence where they choose to go to college, and worried about that. And so, you know, wouldn't it be great if more schools are offering, you know, if people know that there are a lot of schools that offer safe, gluten-free food, so that that becomes less of a stress for teenagers?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So for families who have a child that's newly diagnosed with celiac disease, how do you recommend that they approach managing a gluten-free diet so that they're doing it in a way to keep their child safe but to not become overly burdened?
1: So I think we, you know, we just absolutely must continue to advocate for strict 100% gluten-free diet for people with celiac. Um I think our research showed was that for some this sort of hypervigilance may come at a cost and that needs to support be supported and addressed concurrent with following a strict gluten free diet. You know, the thing when newly diagnosed, I think it makes sense that the focus is often going to be on diet adherence. The individuals have to learn like what they could eat, what they can't eat, how to navigate an incredibly complex food system. And so maybe initially we're not so focused on sort of the emotional and social health, but we recommend, you know, ongoing involvement of a multidisciplinary team that includes not only doctors, but registered dietitians, mental health professionals when needed to support people in such a lifelong diet. I know your hospital, right? Children's National Health System includes a psychologist as part of a comprehensive approach for children. And I think that's really wonderful. And would love to see that as sort of the norm everywhere where when treating celiac, the sort of Paradigm is that you're thinking not only about adherence, but you're thinking about um, quality of life um, concurrently. Yeah, now, and I, concern was that in our oh sorry
0: no ahead. no go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say in our study, it was a little concerning that we saw only 16% of adults and less than 30% of our teens were currently seeing a dietitian. Uh, most reported that they did when they were first diagnosed but then weren't continually followed up on a regular basis. And, you know, that's concerning because I think conversations to promote adherence and quality of life definitely will take time and it can't be done in a single visit, especially when that initial visit, there's so much to cover.
0: Absolutely. And we saw the exact same thing amongst our patients, which is why when we opened our multidisciplinary clinic, that we don't give them the choice to see or not to see the dietitian or the psychologist. Everybody sees everyone when they come in. And what we've seen is that some people, you know, hear about this and they say, oh, well, I don't need to see the psychologist or I don't need education. And we say, "Okay, you know, you'll just do a quick check in. And if, you know, you feel you don't need it, then we can just move on. And we've never had a single person say that they didn't get something out of those meetings. So it's been really great to be able to just have everybody going through that whole process of seeing the whole team every visit.
1: Yeah, and, you know, in our study, we asked people why, if they didn't, if they weren't going on a regular basis, why not? And repeatedly, we heard people say, oh, it's because I could get everything I need from the Internet. And, you know, while there's some wonderful information on the Internet, there's also a lot of misinformation on the Internet. And um, some of the work that Dr. Ann Lee did at the Celiac Center at Columbia showed that individuals who participated in face-to-face support groups had higher quality of life scores compared to those that only tried to get social support online. So we know there's something very important about those face-to-face, in-person interactions um, from a support group, as well as having the multidisciplinary team of a dietitian, doctor, and psychologist.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So for patients who have already been on the gluten-free diet for many years, what should they do if they feel like their diet has become overly burdensome?
1: Yeah, I mean, that certainly wouldn't be surprising. We know that any long-term diet is really hard, and for those with celiac disease, they have to maintain for life. But, you know, I think my advice would be the same as far as recommending ongoing involvement of a multidisciplinary team. In addition, our study... I mentioned we also asked people, what made it a little easier for you? What made things a little less burdensome for you when following a strict gluten-free diet? And, you know, a couple things stood out. So over 85% of our um, adults and teens told us that, by far, having a supportive family and friends was really helpful. So, for example, teens found it helpful when parents made the home gluten-free or gluten-free wasn't allowed in the house, or they tell us that they boyfriends or girlfriends would um, help choose restaurants um, where they could eat or that their mom would help them research restaurants or question the waiters um, so that they didn't always have to. And I think the message there is that family and friends of people at Celiac should realize just how important they are in the management of somebody's diet and their quality of life. The other thing that came up a lot was over 70% of our adults and teens told us that being able to cook was really helpful, which was surprising to hear, even from the teens, which was nice. And they would say that being more confident in the kitchen really made them feel like they didn't have to worry as much. Um, Some people told them it gave them a better sense of what ingredients are in recipes, which was helpful when they ate out at restaurants, made them feel like their food would be safe. And so maybe that would be another piece of advice to um, encourage people to learn how to cook, which a lot of people are not comfortable in the kitchen, but, you know, I think that's a skill that would be really helpful for people of any age with celiac because, you know, then they learn that they could prepare food that tastes good and that they could share with others and, you know, could have people over, go to other people's homes, bring food if needed just seemed like something that came up a lot um that people felt was helpful. And then lastly the third main thing that came up that people said made things less burdensome was having access to some good apps and internet sites in particular, like find me gluten free came up all the time as making things a little easier when it came to eating out.
0: Absolutely. So the cooking thing, I think, is really interesting and and so perfect. Um, so I, I have a four year old with celiac, and so um, uh-huh. it's been it's been interesting. He was diagnosed when he was three, and just seeing how he's learned to to cope with his gluten-free diet and really become an advocate for himself. But one of the things he asked me to do uh, a few months ago was if he could invite all of his friends from school over for a gluten-free pizza party so that they could learn how to make gluten-free pizza with him because it was something that Brandon and I did together all the time. So we invited his entire class of 12 kids and their parents over and a lot brought siblings too. And all of them made pizza with us and with Brandon and even six months later the kids are still talking about the party and how good gluten-free pizza was and what's been the most amazing change though is that when we go to birthday parties or playdates and the parents have food they always order gluten-free pizza for Brandon because we you know introduce them to the idea that gluten-free pizza exists and the smile on Brandon's face when one of his friends says Brandon we got you gluten-free pizza it's It's worth everything in the world just to see him so happy with it.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes back to sort of family and friends realizing what an important role they have in sort of the quality of life of, you know, adults and kids with celiac just for those exact reasons you said. There's something, you know, so um, just wonderful to a child to go somewhere and know that somebody ordered special for them or... You know, ask the parent ahead of time. How can I order? Where should I order from? You know, how can I make sure it's safe for them so that they have something when they're there? And and then going back to the cooking, you know, that also is just so fabulous because I would think your son just felt so proud. You know that he's made, You know he made something that obviously tasted really good and everybody really enjoyed. And now all of a sudden, like cooking gluten free is, you know, something really fun and. Um, he could do with his friends.
0: Absolutely. We went to – he had a birthday party a couple of weeks ago that was a brunch party, so, you know, I called the mom ahead of time because I knew they were going to have bagels and, like, lox and cream cheese, and I wanted to, you know, make sure that there was yeah. something for brain. I was going to bring it all myself. She's like, nope, I already ordered gluten-free bagels from the Squirrel and the Bee Bakery. I got a separate tub of cream cheese, and I got him gluten-free cupcakes, a vanilla one and a chocolate one, and you can tell me which one to put the Paw Patrol sticker on. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah. really?
1: do people even realize how- – how how much that just makes people you know the parents of someone with celiac or the person with celiac just relax and yeah. really enjoy themselves and just you know just it takes such a weight off people's shoulders and just how incredibly helpful and supportive that is when people do that for other people and um and yeah so i think you know that came out sort of loud and clear in our study as well just sort of the, um, the importance of family and friends when it came to supporting quality of life
0: issues. Absolutely. So this wasn't on our, on our question list that we had talked about, but if you're comfortable speaking about it, you know, I know you also have a child with celiac disease, and I'm curious if anything from, that you found in your study has changed the way that you approach managing the gluten-free diet at home.
1: Yeah, so I have um, I have a son. He's um, 11 now. He was diagnosed when he was eight years old. But this di- this study did actually have an impact on me, and that I think it just it just really made me I think even more sensitive to the importance of quality of life. Like just just sort of as an example, we recently were up in the po- you know a couple weekends ago, we were up in the Poconos, and. Um, a, you know, called ahead. You know, found out which restaurants would 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 uh, be able to accommodate. And when we got to the restaurant, you know, did did what I think everyone would think was right. You know, in the sense of asking um, um, the right questions. Um, he wanted. He decided he was going to get a steak, and you know, he asked it be on the clean, you know, clean pan, and that asked about the french fries and if they'd be um, the separate fryer and and you know the place was wonderful and incredibly accommodating and you know I think everybody felt sort of good about about um, ordering that meal and then the few minutes later the way um, the manager came out and said you know I just wanted to let you know that we don't have a um child's portion of the steak, so he'll have to get the adult portion of the, we can't make the child's portion gluten-free, he'll have to have the adult portion, and that'll be $32. <laughs> and Lovely. I remember in that moment, just, you know, it sort of just struck me, like, we sort of did everything right when it came to the adherence, but that now was a quality of life issue, like, they now made him feel bad, I felt that his food was more expensive. Like he called attention to it, like how expensive his food was and made him feel a little guilty. I think he felt guilty, like, wow, can I still have it? It's so expensive. And to me, that was a quality of life issue. And I feel like, you know, some of the work we've been doing just made me pick up on that much quicker. And, you know, yes, it was an expensive steak, but it was in that moment, you know, of course, no problem. Of course, we still want it. Just to make sure he didn't feel bad. And so I feel like... Things like that have come up a lot. Where um, trying to not just tuned into um, all the questions around adherence, but also just trying to be really sensitive to all the quality of life issues that come up, and and trying to help navigate those with him together.
0: Absolutely, I I feel that way every time. Um... We go out to a restaurant that's a little bit nicer, and they make a point about talking about the difference in cost at the table with my with my kids there. And I mean, Brandon's four; he yeah. doesn't he doesn't really know what it means, but at some point he will. Yeah. And you know, I do. I hear that a lot about restaurants and kids' portions versus the adults' portions. We had it happen in a deli recently where they, um, mm-hmm. they have like, deli sandwiches, and they pre-sliced all the, gluten fr- all the meats for gluten-free sandwiches in the morning and kept them separate. But they told us that they couldn't make a turkey sandwich on the child's menu because the portions were pre-portioned for gluten-free to the adult's menu. And it was also like a right. huge difference. It was like a $5 sandwich versus like a $16.95 sandwich. Um, right. And, you know, we took a lot of turkey home that day with us. But Right. You know, it, it's right. just sort of but makes you wonder. some
1: decisions as a family, right, You're, you really have to sort of weigh. You know, maybe it's worth paying the extra money just because um, emotionally it's a better situation for the child. So,
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. so this was an absolutely fascinating study. Um, do you have any other advice for families to navigate the gluten-free diet in a positive way?
1: The main take absolutely must be that um, – People have to continue to follow a strict gluten-free diet. The caveat that for some, being extremely vigilant may come at a cost and that we really need to support emotional and social health concurrent with adherence. You know, I guess main advice would be that I hope families value the importance of a multidisciplinary team, that um, that there should be doctors, dietitians, not to be afraid to ask for a mental health professional, if you feel um, that would help your child, if it's not a um, standard part of the team where your child gets care, I think to encourage ongoing visits to a knowledgeable dietitian who knows about celiac disease and not just after the initial diagnosis. I think a lot of families, again, just go that initial time and don't think it's important to keep going back because they think they won't learn anything new but to sort of shift the thinking to not only can you learn something new each time you go, but conversations to talk about adherence and quality of life are going to take time, and that's why it's important to go on a regular basis, especially throughout the different phases of development and transition into adulthood for, for kids. Um, I also think it's important to explore interventions that, will help to reduce some of the barriers that we learned about in our study to hope that created the most anxiety and stress. So we're currently pilot testing a variety of different interventions to hopefully look at what is their utility in addressing both adherence and quality of life. So we're looking at the potential utility of gluten sensor devices, we're looking at the utility of um, cooking classes, We'll be looking at online discussion tools that are done live. So even though they're on live, um, online, but you would have um, a real-time interaction with a dietitian. And then we also are going to be looking at family-based interventions as well because um, we know the importance of family in helping to promote quality of life um, as well as adherence. So those are all the things that we're hoping that we're currently underway and hoping to learn more about in the future. And if people wanted to go to the Celiac Disease of Columbia University website, celiacdiseasecenter.columbia.edu, they could learn more about the different studies and how to get involved if they're in the
0: New York area. That's absolutely amazing. And I can't wait to see what the results are of all of these great programs. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wolf, for joining us today. This was such wonderful information that I know will be so helpful to our listeners as they navigate their own gluten-free diets. Now, before we sign off, I've got our grocery shopping tip of the month, which is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Giant Martin's Foods. Did you know that many rice cereals are sweetened with malted barley, which is not gluten-free? This means that even if you see a cereal advertised as being made from rice, you still need to double-check the label to be certain that it does not contain a flavoring or additive that's made from gluten. Well, that's all for today. I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast, and we'll talk to you again next time.